Good morning. It is good to be here in Belmont again and to see some old friends and perhaps some new friends. Um, Belmont and the Urban Ministry have a long-standing relationship in many ways that we've connected through time. Uh, we have three very stalwart delegates um, who have been part of trying to keep you informed about our work. They are Nancy Davis, Michael Collins, and Sean Westgate. Thank you to them. I want to thank my good colleague, the Reverend Chris Jablonski, for inviting me back and looking for ways to strengthen our connections. And uh, in addition to the work that he does ministering in Belmont, he also ministers to our larger faith by supporting many ministers in our district. So it's good to be here with him and with your new intern and get to know him a little bit. Uh, there are some wonderful supporters in this congregation, uh, Martha Spaulding, Nancy and Mark Davis, the Hamans, uh, Nanny and Eric Almquist, Jim and Mary Louise Landfried, and a number of other wonderful supporters. I found from uh, that there are 15 families in Belmont who have each given 15 years consecutively, which is really amazing support. Uh, so thank you for all that support. And Belmont has a congregation, has supported projects at the Urban Ministry like some years ago installing a computer lab for our youth program and more recently installing a commercial dishwasher in our kitchen. And so I'm just really grateful to uh, receive all that support and be able to, to be here this morning to tell you uh, what's happening at the Urban Ministry. And I am here in my favorite season. Uh, it's this beautiful autumn that we're having when everything is changing and I love how the trees are still sort of green but softening into yellow and some champagne reds and the leaves are then falling and clustering in the corners of doorways and the zinnias are still bright. As a gardener, this is the end of the gardening season or at least the end of the growing season and the beginning of the season of dreaming and planning for next year. Are there any gardeners here? Outdoor gardeners in your garden? Quite a few gardeners. So I've been a gardener of sorts since I was 11 when I went into my backyard and I turned over some soil and I planted some carrot seeds that were probably too close together and I never thinned them and they emerged as these like gargantuan bulbs of carrot with all these spindly carrot legs and that was my first crop and I was not discouraged and I continued over many years to dig into the soil plant seeds grow vegetables but always a somewhat impatient and impulsive gardener and are there any impatient and impulsive gardeners all right so last year I decided to slow down and deepen my gardening practice and I signed up for a master gardener's certification course and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't secretly drawn to the idea of being a master gardener an expert holding impressive knowledge beyond beyond that of ordinary gardeners and then it was like this it was like this door opened not to mastery but to the vastness of all that I don't know about gardening. 
And what I earned a certification in was the certification of knowing all that I don't know that I formerly didn't know that I didn't know, and that in fact, I will never fully know. That is my certification. So instead of tips on like fertilizing tomatoes and how to plant carrots was this world of knowledge about what it means to tend to the earth right around me. It was from the value of native plant species to the dangers of invasive species to how rain that flows from our roofs and down our gutter spouts flows into the stormwater and pollutes the bay. The one thing that I most clearly learned in my master gardening course was that if master gardener means being an expert, then I will never be one. I will always be learning and making mistakes and trying and learning and trying again. And that is just what it feels like in my work at the urban ministry. Just what it feels like to decide to undertake the work of racial justice, to begin a journey that reveals far more than I imagined, that I will never be an expert in, and that is more foundational and essential than I once understood. And it's good to be here to share that journey with you. Belmont is one of 46 Unitarian Universalist congregations around Greater Boston that are members of the urban ministry. And we're a 190-year-old nonprofit that was founded by the Reverend Joseph Tuckerman, a Unitarian minister. Reverend Tuckerman was committed to listening to those who were oppressed. He would go into the streets to talk to people and hear them. And then he was committed to also educating privileged Bostonians about the poverty he witnessed and the conditions that created it. And he became known as the father of modern social work. He merged the justice work of Unitarian congregations. And ever since then, the urban ministries congregations have been central to our work. Over time, we've done many different things, built elder housing, created a pantry, had a legal clinic. And 50 years ago, one event helped to steer our course to where we are today. In 1976, one of the Urban Ministries member congregations, First Church in Roxbury, folded. The church was founded in Roxbury in the 1600s by the Puritans, and the congregation worshiped there through the centuries, through the Civil War, through the Revolutionary War, and in time, Roxbury became an affluent white Boston suburb. But by the 1970s, the urban and suburban landscapes around the country and in Boston were changing. Roxbury had become the heart of Boston's African-American community. Throughout the decades in Boston, government-sanctioned covenant restrictions, redlining, racist FHA and HUD policies had encouraged an exodus of white people from city to suburbs. While African-Americans could only find housing in neighborhoods like Roxbury where the housing stock was older, 
and banks refused home improvement loans and where the government disinvested. It was in that context that the white congregation of First Church Roxbury dwindled. So First Church Roxbury's last members decided to close and they bequeathed to us their property and their historic buildings. One of them, Boston's oldest surviving wood frame church building, an iconic in that community, and another nearby parish hall that was built in the mid-1800s. It was all on a large green space that overlooks the Boston skyline. That's the ground that I stepped onto when I came to the urban ministry eight years ago. Our programs were a domestic violence shelter, youth programming, weekend activities for young children. Beneath that, though, pulsed something else. It was the work of confronting racism in greater Boston. Our location cried out for it. That wasn't what I signed up for, though. On my first week there, the killers of Michael Brown were not indicted. You may recall that Michael Brown was an 18-year-old African-American youth shot and killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. I've told this story before, how that week, the first week that I arrived at the Urban Ministry, the staff came and asked me to make a public statement on the death of Michael Brown and on the injustice that the officers who killed him were not indicted and held accountable. I remember sitting in my office, nervous, lighting a candle, trying to breathe through it, because I didn't want to make a statement. Because I was new, but also I didn't know what to think then about the killing of Michael Brown, and I didn't know how to talk about racism, and that wasn't the work that I had come to do. I came to run programs to help people. That's what I came to do. But what I was called to do was a whole other matter. The urban ministry was given a gift of location, one we are all called to live into. We are grounded in this amazing community of Roxbury. Its story tells the national story of racism, urban renewal, and segregation. And it also tells the story of resilience, of black community organizing and resistance and cultural richness. And we are encircled by suburban communities also shaped by racism in reverse, shaped by policies that have given benefits to people who are white, policies that have kept these communities white by design, and that have UU congregations in the center of them, congregations who are also called to dismantle racism and have the power to make change. This is an extraordinary opportunity for our faith to do the work of dismantling racism, to do the work of real justice. Over time, this work at the intersection of communities has cured me of my reluctance to deal with race. I learn daily 
about the history of racism and how racism is foundational in this country and how it shows up in every single system. It's the root cause of enormous suffering, from the racial wealth gap to health disparities to the heart of the prison industrial complex to the reasons why our communities are so segregated. Here are just a few of the measures of the impact of racism from the Brookings Institute. One in three black men born in 2001 will spend time in prison in their lifetimes. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, the juvenile justice system confines black youth at four times the rate of white youth. One in three black families have zero or negative wealth. Many of us by now have heard the statistics from the Federal Reserve Bank that in Boston, while Bostonians have a net worth, not income, but what you own after you deduct your, um, what, you, uh, what you own after you deduct your debt, White Bostonians have a net worth of $247,000, while black Bostonians have a net worth of $8. In the United States, one in three black children live in poverty, three times as likely to do so as white children. One in seven black children suffer from asthma, and according to the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, black Americans are three times as likely to die from asthma. That's just one of the health disparities. The average lifespan in Roxbury is 30 years less than it is one mile away in White Back Bay. Meanwhile, white people continue to hold most of the power control and resources. In this book, White Fragility, that you heard from earlier, Robin D'Angelo gives some examples from the years 2016, 2017. These might be slightly different in 2022, but not by much. The 10 richest Americans, 100% white. U.S. Congress, 90% white. U.S. governors, 96% white. Top military advisors, 100% white. People who decide what TV shows we see, 93% white. People who decide which books to, we read, 90% white. People who decide what news is covered, 85% white. Teachers, 82% white. Full-time college professors, 84% white. This is the world that we're moving in where white people hold power and control of the systems that still benefit and reflect us and that disadvantage black Americans. A little over a year ago, the Urban Ministry adopted a new mission that faces that reality. We committed to dismantle racism and white supremacy culture and to advance racial, economic, and social justice. We know that we cannot alone dismantle racism in Greater Boston, but we can use our strength to work at it on our patch of Greater Boston. And since that adoption, we have been working to imagine what does that ask of us now? How do we change our work, reshape our work, start new work? We are trying to figure it out, and it is hard and messy and sometimes slower than we want, 
and it takes trying and learning and learning more and rolling up our sleeves. And the lesson from my garden are those that I bring into this work too. And they are these. First, test your soil. That is what is in this soil. What is our history? What is beneath our feet? The urban ministry is committed to examining our history, the inherited history of First Church in Roxbury and the history of the urban ministry itself. We engaged a researcher from Harvard's African American Studies program to look into the history of enslavers and the enslaved connected to First Church in Roxbury, and he has finished his research, which shows the depth of enslavement related to the church with even its very first minister being an enslaver. I shared the history a little a moment ago about we, how we inherited our historic and iconic campus by white flight in 1976 because it's important that we name that we inherited this space in the heart of Roxbury from a white congregation that died because of white flight. That is part of our legacy. We need to look also at our own UU Urban Ministry history as a historically white organization, examine our stories and the mistakes we've made along the way. We all need to do that work, non-defensively and courageously. In D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, we heard from the African-American scholar Amawale Akintunde, who said, quote, racism is a systemic, societal, institutional, omnipresent, and epistemologically embedded phenomenon that pervades every vestige of our reality, end quote. But for white people, D'Angelo says, it's invisible, like water. We see race as something that's part of a black community over there, like Roxbury, but not necessarily as part of our white communities and histories. And our work is to learn to see the water in which we are swimming. D'Angelo writes, quote, predominantly white neighborhoods are not outside of race. They are teeming with race, end quote. One way to see the water is telling and holding up the histories that underpin our churches, our communities, our institutions. Lesson two, fix the soil. At the Urban Ministry, we commit to change, change from within. Two years ago, after the murder of George Floyd, our organization was among those who made statements, and we made clear commitments that we are continuing to follow. One was researching our history. Another is ensuring greater representation of people of color on our board. Our priority has been cultivating more community members so that our board looks like the communities that we seek to bring together. UUs, many of whom are white, former many of whom are white, as well as former program participants, mostly people of color, and Roxbury community members of color. Today, six of 15 of our board members are people of color, and when I come back next year, I hope I'll be able to report that we're at half. We have diversified all of our staff leadership, and we're working to recruit volunteers of color so that at every level there is shared power. Because without shared power, injustice persists. Fix the soil.
Three, plant plants where they should be planted. You heard Reverend Jablonski's uh, children's message, and it was exactly that. Plant things where they should be planted for years. And I don't know if any of the impatient, impulsive gardeners feel me when I tell you this. I would get a plant that was beautiful and go out and say, where would this look good? And just plant it there. I didn't pay attention to the shade or the wind or the direction. And that's why my sun-loving lilac bush didn't bloom at all under the deep shade of a large leafy tree. Likewise, we can't create programs based on what the staff thinks or the congregations think. We need to hear what the community actually wants. So this summer, we convened focus groups of Roxbury business owners to ask how we can partner with them in closing the racial wealth gap. That information that we gathered is shaping a pilot program that we hope will launch later this winter, one that will seek pro bono skills from member congregations like Belmont's and match them with the black-owned businesses who are seeking to grow. We've been meeting with Roxbury nonprofits to see how they want to partner with member congregations. So this summer, City Life Vita Urbana, which protects the rights of tenants in black neighborhoods facing eviction through gentrification, asked us to help with a mailing to inform those who are at risk of eviction of their rights. And some of you were actually at that mailing uh, when we mailed uh, a couple of thousand letters to folks to let them know their rights. We need to listen and then listen more. There are wonderful opportunities to plant the right programs when we do. Lesson four, pull weeds early. Over time, we have faced the legacy of well-intentioned but sometimes clumsy people who are white, like me, seeking to do work in the black community. I remember a meeting with a supporter of the urban ministry who, when I was visiting with him, said in passing how much he liked his neighborhood and then close after that, offhandedly said it's all white people. I wasn't sure what he meant and I was confused by it. And what I should have done and wish I'd done was say, what do you mean by that? And opened up a conversation. Instead, I was silent and I regret that because I let that weed continue to grow. When I came to the urban ministry, staff of color shared stories like that with me. Things that were said to them that were painful and that still echo in the organization. We're committed to doing better than that. We've been building a more robust onboarding program for volunteers and staff, one that includes cultural competence training, an understanding of Roxbury's history, and the government-sanctioned reasons why our communities are so segregated. White people need to enter communities of color not to fix or help, but with a humility that is born of an understanding of how this injustice was created by design. And we all need to learn how to give and receive feedback when we do and say things that perpetuate racism and hurt. Every gardener knows that it's best to pull weeds as soon as we see them. They never just disappear on their own when we ignore them. And five, truly lasting gardens are not built in a day or a season. 
When we adopted our new mission statement last year, it was the end of a long multi-year journey. But this new mission is the beginning of another long journey. And it will take more than my lifetime to complete it. What matters is that we stay the course, learning, stumbling, trying, committed. When George Floyd was killed, many of us flooded into the streets to protest. Many of us made statements committed to change. We have to ensure that this commitment isn't a fad or a trend that happened during COVID. Our eyes have been opened and we need to focus that they remain so. This summer, after the completion of my master gardening course, I grew tomatoes again. And I don't know if it was the soil of the summer's heat, but most of my crops suffered some kind of a disease and they were ruined. And it was so discouraging. But that failure became an opportunity to learn more. I reached out to fellow gardeners. I learned how to improve my soil for the next year. In gardening, you need to take the long view. A beautiful garden isn't built in a season. It will take years of learning and doing and redoing, years of letting things fill in and blossom, of reading and sharing and talking and trying, of beginning again and again. The only real mistake is giving up. So I'm here this morning to invite you to deepen your work with us, to learn with us and to support us. In the year ahead, we'll roll out new historic walking tours of our neighborhood to share the stories of Roxbury and learn from them. Come in for a tour. We'll pilot this new program to partner with Roxbury businesses, sign up to share your expertise or make a donation to help fund it. We'll again air our Community Conversations webinars, highlighting Roxbury leaders speaking on issues that they want addressed, sponsor a conversation as a congregation, and watch it, talk about it. This past season in my garden, I didn't do all that I wanted. My potato crop was sparse, and I shared already my sad tomatoes. But I also planted bushes of goldenrod for the pollinators that took, and salvia for migrating hummingbirds, and they remain deep purple into the autumn. I imagine what's possible as I persevere and what's possible if we all do that? Keep trying and tending and never giving up. Amen and blessed be.